that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. We have a good old-fashioned Monday Madness for you. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Doug Lamer. This is probably like the last Monday Madness. Mm. Maybe the next to last Monday Madness before I have my own madness to deal with, with the baby coming any day now. Doug, what is like your biggest piece of new parent advice? Like you've done it twice, like fresh out of the oven, newborn. What's the thing I need to know the most? So I'll say two, because a sports writer friend of mine told me this when I had a kid. And he said, uh, because he had kids older than me. And he said, write stuff down. Write stuff down so you remember it. Whether you keep a diary or some kind of just notebook for childhood memories, write stuff down. And I said, that was an excellent idea. And I have never written anything down that my kids have done. But 18 years later, it's like, man, that would have been good. So learn from my mistakes. The other thing is dumber people than you have figured this out. That is what gets me through life on a daily basis. Like, oh, my, am I? It's like, I'm dumb. You're dumb. I'm dumb. We're not the dumbest people to ever have kids. And it's not like kids are falling out of trees all the time. I mean, you walk around, most of the kids seem functional. So it's like, all right, well, I'm, you know, you've you've run across people, right? You know, people, idiots. Sure. So that's my driving force in life and as a parent. Yeah, I I'm not that stressed by this yet. I feel like the day it happens, and then once it's like, once he's here, it's going to be like, oh man, what did I get myself into? I'm not feeling overly stressed right now, but I've also I've not spent that much time around babies, so my biggest thing right now is just kind of what you're talking about. Like, I'm just worried about how like fragile they seem. Okay. Now I have actual, I baby, actual baby advice. Football hold is very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you put sort of like, yeah, up between, like you put your arms sort of up, like between their legs and you grab like underneath them, you grab the head. And the other key is when they're crying, it's sway, don't rock. If you don't put the baby in your arms and rock your arms, you hold mm-hmm. the baby and you sway your whole body. That's what is soothing to them. Not just you standing still and arm motion. Your arms are nice and solid and then you sway and they sway with you. I'm swaying. Maybe you can gotcha. hear me swaying to and from the microphone. I can that's see. Much, that's much oh, yeah, more they soothing. See. They can't see me. That's much more soothing to them. And what it's just, you know, it's the difference of a whole body thing rather than just an arm thing. I think that makes that's, a lot of sense. That's real. That's real advice. Um, and uh, sleep when they sleep. That, the biggest thing that I think I've heard that makes the most sense to me is your inclination right away is for both of you to be doing everything at the same time with the baby. And you're going to have to like get out of that. And you're going to have to do things in shifts because it's the only way everybody's going to get some sleep out of this, at least at the beginning. But don't think like, oh, the baby's taking a nap. Now this is time for me to be productive. It's like, no, the baby's taking a nap. You take a nap. Yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense as well. All right, I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty excited about it. And um, we'll see how it goes this fall when I'm uh, still a new father and back covering this football team. But it's Monday Madness. So as we've been doing here these last couple months, we're going to talk about an Ohio State topic, 
We're going to talk about more of a national topic, and then we'll talk some uh, food and uh, eyeballs stuff at the end, which uh, we always do. Not eyeballs as food. Don't get confused. What we do with our eyeballs and, and what kind of food we've been enjoying. But first up, uh, a question that came in from a couple of our texters. As, as you know, we if you've been listening to the pod, we've done a lot of stuff with uh, rapid fires this week. And we got a couple of questions from our texters that were along the same topic. From the 614, if this defense is better next fall, this coming season, what percentage of the credit do you give, one, the young players from last year maturing, or two, all the new coaches? And along the same lines from the 740, do you guys feel as though there's been enough impact with the new coaches to warrant high hopes people are laying on the defense? Are they showing they can work together as a staff? And it's an interesting proposition because, yes, we think that there were so many young players on this defense that there would probably be some progress just from that maturation, that improvement, that development. It's guys at key positions, you know, JT Tumaloao, Jack Sawyer, especially Denzel Burke, like guys who were just true freshmen last year coming in the second year. That alone should should make this defense better. But are we optimistic because of that? Or should Ohio State fans be optimistic because of that? Or would all of that be tempered a little bit if you still had the same coaching staff in place, if you hadn't overhauled the coaching staff, or maybe even more specific than that, is it what Jim Knowles is doing and the way he's kind of orchestrating things right now that makes us more optimistic that Ohio State will have a better defense in 2022? So what do they say? It's not about the X's and O's. It's about the Jimmy's and Joe's, right? That's what everybody loves to say. So I would say if if they had good young players, which they do, but they had the exact same coaching staff, I think people would be worried. And I think people covering this team would be like, hmm, I don't know about this. I can't believe they ran it back with Matt Barnes and Kerry Combs and Al Washington and Larry Johnson and Parker Fleming, right? I do think that's how we would feel, even though we'd be saying, well, JT, Jack Sawyer, Jordan Hancock, maybe a little more from some of the linebackers. Josh Proctor's healthy. Oh, stuff's coming along. More Cam Martinez, whatever. Ty Leak Williams, Ty Hamilton. We'd be, we'd be talking about the, the young defenders who should make a difference on the defense, but I think there still would be apprehension. So I think from a perception standpoint, to get everybody in the right frame of mind, and of course there's the actual installing of the new defense, but I think they needed a change. I think they needed a confidence boost. So I think from a perception standpoint, it feels right now like it's the coaches are going to get more credit if the defense is better. But then I actually think when it comes down to it, it's going to be that the players are better. So I do think once it, if it happens, if it does, and they go from what feels like a defense that you can't necessarily rely on against great teams to, wow, as we said, maybe they're not a top five, top 10 defense, but they are like, hey, they're they're playing a good team this week with a good offense. And look what they did. They handled their business. I do think in the end, that's going to be more about Jack and JT and Denzel and Jordan and uh, maybe some CJ Hicks, but a little more steel chamber settling in and a healthy Josh Proctor. I do think it'll be more players, but I think they still needed to make the changes. That even though if I'm saying if my vote is maybe... I think the, the texture asked percent. If I'd say in the end, it's going to be like 60 or 65% players. 
and 40 or 35% coaches, I still think they had to make the coaching change. You know what I mean? So well, that's yeah, a, because a mamby-pamby I, answer. Well, not really, but so the important distinction is you're saying that's who will deserve the credit, but who will actually get the credit. I yeah. think the coaches will actually get more credit if this defense has a, a real turnaround this year, whether that's Ryan day for making the decision to do it, whether it's Jim Knowles himself for bringing in this defense. But when you talk to the players this spring, it's a lot of talk about we're getting put in position to make plays. We're getting put in position to attack. They want us being aggressive. It's, it's about a different mindset that they've tried to bring to this defense or that Manolos has brought to this defense so far this spring. We did, because of this pending um, arrival that I have, we've recorded some things ahead of time. One of them was a piece um, about basically some things that would have happened. I don't know how specific we want to be about it because I don't want to tease to it. I don't want to tease to it. You don't post it for two months. That's okay, but the people okay. be excited. We, it's we coming did. in the next couple months. Okay. Just keep your ears open. We did a retalkables about what, or a, I'm sorry, a Buckeye fly effect about what would have happened if Ohio State had won the Michigan game this past year. And obviously one of the repercussions of that game was the coaching staff changes. Even if you think Ohio State would have had to make coaching staff changes, would the timeline have been thrown off and they wouldn't have been able to hire Jim Knowles? And part of that discussion was like, well, you can easily see how if Ohio State goes all the way to the playoff, Maybe Matt Barnes is just like the holdover defensive coordinator for this year. And I think it would have made a really interesting spring because and by interesting, I mean, maybe frustrating for fans, maybe for us too, because I think the all everything this spring would have been about, okay, yes, the players are getting better, but what defensive changes are you making? Like, what are you, how are you changing the scheme? How are you changing philosophies or adjusting philosophies at the very least? And then do we get to see any of that in the spring game? Because we saw, I think of a variety of coverages from Jim Knowles' defense in the spring game, but not, they weren't showing us a lot. They weren't showing us the fun stuff. And I think it probably would have been pretty vanilla, no matter who the defensive coordinator was in the spring game. And I think we would have left this spring with, more questions than we seem to have right now, even though we still have some questions right now, like who's actually going to play the Jack and who's actually going to start here or there. And how are they going to do this? You know, little wrinkles like that. But I, I feel like there would have still been like, like you're saying, kind of like just a lot more trepidation still coming out of the spring without these changes. And I also think that some of the optimism people are feeling is that you're getting away from you're just you're you're stepping into a more dynamic version of defense than what you saw on the field the last two years. And the one thing that we do have some facts about Ohio State has better players than Oklahoma State. That's not an insult to anybody. I'm not so sure even last year, you know, Malcolm Rodriguez is a really good player at Oklahoma State. And Tanner McAllister is a really good player at Oklahoma State. But one through 11, one through 11 was Oklahoma's defensive talent, Oklahoma State's defensive talent better than Ohio oh, State's, better I, I, than Denzel Burke and Haskell Garrett and Zach Harrison and Ronnie Hickman. I, probably not, right? I don't know. Well, I guess Tanner McAllister may have started for Ohio State last year at a similar position. Probably would have started over Marcus Williamson, I guess. I like that slot yeah. cover safety. 
I don't know that Marco Rodriguez would have started over Ohio State's linebacker. Maybe. I, I thought, I, thought I, last year the linebackers were a problem. He, I mean, he's a I veteran do, linebacker but, who played. You don't think he would have started over Steel Chambers? I think he would have. But he's like uh, their best maybe player. He, yeah, yeah. But he's like their best guy. Maybe right. three, right? Maybe three of the Oklahoma State defensive starters. Maybe four. I don't know. Not ten. We're not. We're not going to pretend we're experts on Oklahoma State's right. defense. But last year, by Football Outsiders defensive efficiency metric, Oklahoma State was two. Ohio State was 42. So what's that? Is it players or is it scheme? Well, it's a scheme maximizing players who understood the scheme and fit in it and had been in there for a while. But that's one of those where then you would point and say, why isn't the answer coaching deserves more credit then? Because look how good the coaching was when he didn't have four and five-star recruits. Now he's going to have four and five-star recruits. But Ohio State, even with the dip, the recruiting dip, the talent dip that we noted, they still had good talent last year, decent, really good at some spots, and it wasn't good enough. So maybe it should be. Maybe coaching should be the answer. But I just think there's a chance that, like if we said how many – how many difference-making defensive players do you think Ohio State might have this year? Guys who affect games on their own. Kind of no matter how you use them, but they're good enough that snap to snap or 12 snaps a game, they're really doing something. I think they have a chance to maybe have like six. I think that's, that's, a, that's, a long, that's on the high side, but it's, it's definitely within reach. Tumaloal, Sawyer, Burke. And Zach Harrison. Let's not forget Harrison, Zach Harrison. Yeah. But let's count the two end spots. Okay. Say both end spots. The positions. We think will yeah. Be that. Yeah. Then I think between like Ty Lake Williams and Ty Hamilton and Mike Hall and some, maybe one of the tackle spots you'd call that. Denzel Burke, I think, is probably that. That's four. Hickman, five. Proctor, if he's healthy. Six. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. And it's important to bring up too. Some of the personnel issues last year were not the fault of the people who were trying to coach that personnel last year. I mean, Josh Proctor gets hurt. That's a big problem. There were recruiting deficiencies that had happened a couple years earlier in the secondary and other places that were still paying off last year, or the opposite of paying off, um, still holding them back last year. So. There was it was just sort of a perfect storm of, of of several things from a personnel standpoint. I think this coaching staff will benefit, and this 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 happens a lot. I feel like like this next coaching staff is going to benefit from some of just the natural progression. I mean, the the like I already said, Tumalo out and Sawyer and Burke and all these other guys, even those defensive tackles you're talking about being another year older. It's just a it's it's a huge progression year to go from freshman to sophomore or even like redshirt freshman to redshirt sophomore sometimes. So I, I think there's going to be just some natural benefit from there. But I think that it, we can we could see in real time, both early in the season and late in the season, that the defensive approach wasn't there that it needed to be corrected. Somebody needed to come in with fresh ideas, new ideas, and beyond just sort of breathing some life maybe into that side of the ball and getting those guys excited about a new thing, 
I think it's also just the schematic edge. I like the way that Jim Knowles talks about defense. He's he talks about like you know Ryan Day always makes these comments about like oh that's a thing that like keeps you up at night. I think Jim Knowles wants to be the reason he's keeping somebody up mm. at night. He wants to be he wants offensive coordinators to be thinking like what am I doing? Like what's going on? Like it, it's 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 like confusion. It's maybe a little bit of intimidation. I think he wants to be that rascal that is causing people headaches, and I, I think that's just sort of a fun way to think about it but he, he he's doing it not like it's not about like trickery and nuance and stuff like that. i think it, i feel like it's gonna be a pretty aggressive brand of football that i'm eager to see what that actually looks like i think we didn't really get a great taste of it in the spring partially because they haven't installed everything but they've installed a lot and they i think they got a good foundation to move on into the fall but it's the combination of the way jim Knowles is talking about you know sitting at the coach's clinic watching him talk about attacking on defense and being aggressive and then the athletes he's going to be able to do it with just like whoever the defensive coordinator was going to be weren't you excited to see a second year jack sawyer a second year jt to him a first year cj hicks what maybe he could be by the end of his freshman year we don't know but like there's there are intriguing things happening in this defense regardless of the defensive coordinator and then the coordinator potentially putting them in a new and exciting way to succeed. It, it's, it, it is a combination, but I think at the end of the, if the end of the year, if Ohio state's winning a national championship, yes, that, that de- second year development for all those guys is going to come into play. But I think there's going to be a lot written about Jim Knowles, a lot of pats on the back for Jim Knowles and for Ryan day for going and getting him. The reason somebody's up at night, Buckeye talk. I do think. I think it, we're the act- opposite. <laughs> we're the reason you fell asleep in your, 10 30 meeting it's just a talk. matter it's just a matter of if you're if you're mad at us and yelling and like i can't oh, sleep yeah. because that guy there i can't believe what that guy said so i do think actually you know when ohio state needed jim Knowles last year they needed a schemer in the dip and now that they're coming out of the talent dip you need a schemer a little bit less but in a world where you're playing denzel burke and legend cavazos and ryan watts major snaps at corner where you're playing Bryson Shaw as a starting safety. Once Josh Proctor gets hurt when you're having, maybe your best linebacker is a converted running back who just flipped over there where you don't have any ends getting pressure. You know, Tyreek Smith was good at at times for sure, but you don't have a Zach, excuse me, a chase young level defensive end. That's when they needed the scheming Nathan, but it's like, when is Ohio State going to have another talent dip like they experienced last year defensively, which we've covered a million times, which everybody recognizes, which is a very specific thing of a coaching crossover, of some misses in the secondary after Kerry Combs left before he came back, all those things. So now they're coming out of the dip because I do think Jim Knowles probably with a scheme like this is best with a team that's not quite as talented. I think he can turn good talent or even solid talent. I think he can turn solid talent into a good defense and good talent into a great defense. But if he has great talent, then what? Do you turn it into the best defense in the country? Or if you have great talent, do you just want to let talent, great talent go? And you don't have to do much, which frankly, and again, I don't want to say don't have to do much, but 
in a world where Ohio State, when they have great defensive talent, is press man, let our ends get after you, and let's go. Our Jimmys and Joes are going to beat yours. Let's go. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Let's go. Line up. What are you going to do? We're going to cover you man to man. And you better beat me in two seconds. Because if you don't, there's going to be a defensive end wrapped around your quarterback's waist. That. That worked for a long time. And then when they got to the point where the talent wasn't good enough to do that, they were like, what else? And then they didn't have a what else. And Jim Knowles is down in Stillwater saying, man, I got a what else. So they're like, ooh, let's go get that guy's what else. Except now he's arriving when maybe JT Tumaloau and Jack Sawyer are going to be wrapped around quarterback's waists. And Denzel Burke and Jordan Hancock and Cam Brown are like, let's go. So then I'm not saying you don't need him, but maybe you don't need him as much. Last year, if they had Jim Knowles last year, if Kerry Combs and Matt Barnes had been abducted by aliens last summer and they were like, oh my gosh, we need a new defensive coordinator. It's like, I don't know, this Oklahoma State guy's pretty good. If they had Jim Knowles last year, maybe they're in the playoffs. Because maybe he finds a way to say, hey, we're a step below where we usually are. We're playing some young guys. We're playing some guys who should be backups as starters. We're going to disguise coverages. We're going to move things around on the defensive line. We're going to keep you off balance. You don't know where we're coming from. Maybe we don't win as many one-on-one matchups, but I got a little something for you. Now, as Ohio State's talent gets back to normal, you just, I don't think you need that as much. So I don't think they're all the way back to normal, quote, normal on the defensive side of the ball, but they're, they're trending back up after the dip. And I think the opposite side of that question, if we were to do a poll, do you think Ohio State would have made the playoffs last year, made the playoff last year with Jim Knowles as defensive coordinator? I think I think the answer would be yes from majority of respondents. I think if you asked the same group of people, if a, if JT Tumaloa and Jack Sawyer and Denzel Burke and insert name here all take big steps forward from last year, do you think last year's defensive staff would still get this team to the playoff, I think they would say no. Mm. I think there's still that much hesitation about the, just the approach to scheming a defense and the philosophy behind it, that they felt like, even though there were shortcomings in personnel last year, that as you're saying with Jim Knowles, if it had just maybe been orchestrated in a different way, it still would have worked. And I think that there would, so I think it's another reason why I think that ultimately the staff will get, the bulk of the credit this year, if the defense does make that jump. I think, I think that probably is right. But also if you, it's one of those, if you said if Ohio state's defense last year with the same coaches had chase young and Jeff Okuda, would they have made the playoff? It's like, well then, but so then, okay, well then what if, what if JT and Denzel Burke do their version of chase young and Jeff Okuda, then here we are. So again, it's, it's both. It's both. So your vote, if I said, Perception to me feels like it would be coaches, but if it does, if it is significantly better in the end, I think it actually might be something like 63, 37 players. Not, and that would be should, that would be actual execution. They're better. Why? I'll say 63, 37 players. If it goes as we expect, what would you say for not perception, but actuality, what would be your percentage breakdown coaches versus players? Yeah, I think that's probably about right. I think I'd probably be in that same range. Players. You would say players, but we both kind of think the perception will be coaches. Yes, uh, definitely. I think the perception will be coaches, yes. 
unless JT is like, oh, who who are the best pass rush in America? One, Will Anderson, two, JT. Right. Then maybe, then maybe not. Like if they make leaps like that, it's like, oh, okay, Sauce Gardner and and Derek Stingley Jr. and and Kobe Bryant were the best corners in America last year. It's like, who's the best corner in America now? Denzel Burke. Then it might be. Now it'll be Jim Knowles will get credit and Perry Eliano and Tim Walton will get credit for it. But if the play is it, it's like, hey, is Denzel Burke as good as Denzel Ward? Who's the better Denzel? We'll be writing that on Cleveland. If that's where we are, it's like, hey, the first Denzel decide for a hundred million. Maybe this Denzel will get even more. If he's playing like that, then. But I, I probably, I mean, it's like, oh, I'll J. If JT's Chase Young and Denzel's Denzel, then they'll get more credit than the coaches. That probably won't happen. They'll probably be very good, all Big Ten level players, and the defense will be better. And then people will say, man, Jim Knowles got this fixed. But we do the set. There's that second question. I do want to talk about Perry Eliano and Tim Walton a little bit here as well. Are they showing they can work together as a staff? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk a lot about Knowles. Knowles is the linebackers coach. But it feels like to me this secondary combo of Tim Walton and Perry Eliano feels pretty good to me. I think Perry Eliano might be a grand slam. I, I just think they might have gotten an, an exact right guy at the exact right point of his career. And we're never, I know he's coaching safeties, not corners. It's like, I'm never going to get away from the Kerry Combs comparisons because I just think there's something there. And we have to see how he develops guys, but it just developed Sauce Gardner and Kobe Bryant. So it's like, what? A, a history of developing NFL corners, just like Kerry Combs had? Okay. And then like recruiting skill, personality, energy, lifts the room when he's in it. Like difference maker with his presence, which is great, but the technique stuff matters. But the technique stuff was established before he got here because Sauce and Kobe were not five-star recruits and he had them for two years and look, what, look where they're going to go in the draft. I just think he might be the the dude. And I think to pair him with Tim Walton and Tim Walton's like, Hey man, I got this. I've been in the league. I've been around. I've seen it all. I just think I, I like them individually, but I like them together. And I'm not going to pretend I have as much of an impression about Walton. Did you watch either Eliano or I don't know what you got. You and Steven watched in the coaching club. Did you watch Eliano or Walton? I, I got a little bit of, of, both of those guys, but uh, Tim Walton was the one that I sat down for a longer thing. And I was actually looking back at my notes because I texted out a bunch of things from his talk, 614-350-3315. But one of the overlying things was him talking about like the way he coached the NFL is basically the same things he's teaching these guys, partially because that's the standard that they want and partially because these guys all want to be in the NFL. So why would you, you teach them any other way? But there were the way that, he talks about his individual positions. He was specifically talking about cornerbacks and there was a lot of interesting film breakdown stuff about like footwork. And like, unless you have played at a high level and been in, in those kind of meetings, which we didn't, I don't know if people don't know that you and I didn't play high level. How's your back pedal? How's your back pedal? Back, but then back pedaling bean fields as a kid. But even before the back pedal, just like little things that like I, I, you don't, when you're watching 22 people play football that you don't sometimes think of that one-on-one pre-snap face-off and, and how guys work in that situation. But 
just there's a through line between the way Tim Walton and it doesn't sound like he's up there mimicking things Jim Knowles has said. It sounds like his philosophy was very tied into the way that Jim Knowles thinks about defense, about how the cornerbacks are playing the wide receiver, but you're also playing the quarterback. You have to take them off of their first read. So it's again, sort of that idea of like getting in people's mind, but affecting multiple parts of everybody's affecting multiple parts of the offense. Kind of the way Knowles is talking about, well, you're playing the quarterback, but you're also playing the offensive coordinator. Um, he's talking about everything we do will be about putting violent hands on the receiver. And he's not obviously talking about in the middle of a route, getting called for stuff. It's about, again, at that initial point of attack, like, you know, making contact there, every step, every second that you make them work there that they weren't expecting to, that throws the route off. Just, just things like that. Like, and I'm sure a lot of that is just basic defensive back play, but you can see, and right now they're in the honeymoon period, right? I mean, they haven't played a game yet. So everything is all positive. Like you, everyone, you can say everybody's improving. You can say the players can say they like this new defense. You're still, everything goes sideways if Notre Dame puts up 28 in the first half on September, whatever. But there are indications right now, I think, that this group is working well together. Um, it helps that you get a defensive coordinator that comes in and says, I want a safety driven defense. And now that means the two new coaches that you brought in, that kind of emphasizes the importance of them. The two secondary coaches that you brought in, it, it, it does seem to be pretty cohesive right now. Now the question is what happens when adversity hits? Cause I think, you know, that we didn't really think that this was like a splintered coaching staff necessarily by any means, but when did things really kind of come to a head, they get pummeled by Alabama in the national championship game. And then that spills into a loss two games in the next year. And now all of a sudden, there's a, a kind of a crisis happening. I would just like to note for the record that I personally am not always positive at this point of an assistant coach's career at Ohio state. There are plenty of guys where two months in, I'm like, Nope, yeah. not him. So uh, there's guys two hours in where I'm like, Nope, not him. So uh, yes, of course, of course. Yes. But if you thought they had the resume when they got hired, then nothing we haven't had the chance maybe there could have been something that would say oh this feels a little bit like a weird fit we we have not had any evidence of that and then so you go back a lot too they they had the qualifications to get hired for the jobs that they got hired for and and there's there's just another example of this sort of philosophical connection where jim knowles was talking about how he doesn't want to play what do you call it like ifence like he isn't trying to play he wants to be the one controlling the way the game is being played as much as possible. He wants the offense to have to react to Ohio State as much as possible. And then Tim Walton is up there talking about how you you have to make sure that you're um, making those disruptions at the line of scrimmage, because if not, then you're just reacting to the other team. You're not imposing yourself on how that route is developing. And you know his quote was, 50-50 in the world I live in is unemployment. So there just seems to be a philosophical connection between these guys who've only known each other really for a couple months. I don't know if Tim Walton and Jim Knowles had ever met before they got to Columbus for the first time to try to find their offices or whatever. And it's, I'm sure we'll write up more about this in the fall about how maybe a little bit of a TikTok of how this all sort of melded together for them. But it seems to be working right now that there does seem to be, I think that's important that you have a philosophical connection because that can be the hardest thing about assembling a coaching staff. Sometimes is you bring it in guys for each for their own individual attributes. And, and Ryan day, I assume is the one that's more organizing that. I don't know how much input Jim Knowles had actually 
in making final decisions on like Tim Walton and Perry Eliano. I'm sure there was some conversation there, well, but the head coach, the defense, I'm sure. right. Yeah. So, yeah. but I, I, he's not, like, I don't think he's necessarily hand picking those guys. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, like I've seen it work. I've seen it go bad when like a head coach isn't allowed to choose their guys. Oh yeah. That's always a problem. And yeah. so I think that philosophical connection is important. Jim Knowles had input. I do think Ryan Day was on Tim Walton and Perry Eliano. Even though Knowles was hired early, was hired in December, Ryan Day, I think, led the Buckeyes to them. But I'm sure uh, – but I, I I know that Jim Knowles had input with Ryan Day about right. the assembling, assembling the coaching staff, but I think it would be fair to say that Ryan Day had the final call. Yeah. And what are you going to do if you're Jim Knowles and Ryan Day comes to you and says, like, hey, like, I think we might want to hire this guy. He was Sauce Gardner's coach. He didn't allow a touchdown his whole college career. Jim Knowles would be like, ah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you going to say? Like, yeah, well, yeah, we're getting that guy. Like, and then we see that Knowles has brought in how many guys? Three or four uh, yeah, support staff assistants, guys. Yeah. quality control guys, where that's where now that's you. Jim, yes. you have carte blanche on everybody else and the support staff stuff. That it, yeah, there's the extension of him throughout the staff. Yeah, I think that's important. So obviously we'll be paying attention to that as as we get into the summer and fall. But again, early indications are things got off onto a good foot from a defensive standpoint. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about things a little bit on the national level. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. Doug, the retirement of Villanova basketball coach Jay Wright, that really came out of nowhere. Uh, one of the more surprising coaching retirements I think we've had in a while. You know, Coach K, when he stepped down, there was a full year-long farewell tour of the ACC and really all of college basketball, considering how far they got, I guess, in, in the tournament. But Jay Wright, it was almost more of a – I mean, this is a guy who's one of the sort of giants in the profession at, at that moment. And just come off of another Final Four appearance. And at age 60, which is still really young for head coaches in really any sport, uh, walking away. How shocked were you by yeah, that? Yeah, I'm almost 60. Um, I wonder if it's going to work at Disney, at Disney World. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just really I can't wait to clean up vomit at Disney World. So I will be leaving my Two-time national championship. So By the time um, you move down there, he'll be your manager. Yeah, right now he'll be just great. be he'll be entry level now, but like given another decade or. He's smart. I think it's, he's just getting the jump on me. He knows we'll be going for the same jobs. So uh, the thing that I think is interesting about it is is it telling us something? So listen, everybody loves Jay Wright. He's good with the media, smart. Because guess what? Everybody in the media is talking about what a great guy he is. So, and in Philly in Philly of all places. And, you know, I worked in the Philadelphia area for eight years. So I, I still know a lot of the people who cover sports there and are writing about Jay Wright right now and writing about this retirement. But a lot of people I think are looking at this and saying, is this telling us something about where college sports are right now? Cause one of my friends, actually Mike Silski, who's the columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, among other people, he wrote a column about, he talked to a bunch of people around, Jay Wright, that the way things are in college sports helped push him to do this. And he mentioned, I think Mike mentioned NIL and transfer portal, but to me, it's really transfer portal. And it's the effect that NIL might have on the transfer portal, 
but it's not about, and also, by the way, we, this might be worth having a conversation at some point too. Somebody, I think David Hale from ESPN, who actually also, he's an ACC writer. He worked at the paper I worked at in Philadelphia area right after me anyway, was making a point that we lump NIL together in a wrong way, that there's a, deliver, a difference between what like collectives and things like that are doing to try to get recruits to come. And, hey, I'm an established guy on campus and I'm making some money because I'm famous and a company wants to work with me, right? Those really are two different things. And the idea of like it, uh, it influencing people versus, hey, I just have the right to make money off my name, image, and likeness are kind of two different things. So I don't know that any coaches are that bothered by, and who cares if they are, players making money off their image, right? Cool. But if it's affecting roster building, that's what the issue is here, that you recruit guys and you try to develop guys. And then right when you think you might have done something, now they leave. And now you have to, the idea that you have to rebuild your roster, maybe not at the top, but certainly in the middle, not the bottom, every year that the transfer portal is now, well, every year I'm going to lose a couple guys. I'm going to have to go search for a couple guys. And it feels like you're reshaping the team and there's no continuity and it affects your off season. It affects your stress level. Not only are you recruiting high school players, but now you're just, you're trapped in the portal. Players should be able to make money. Coaches can cram it. They're making their money. But I do think there is something to that. And it feels like it influenced the Jay Wright decision here. And I don't have much sympathy for cranky old coaches who are, our kids shouldn't be making money or it's about education, all that, whatever, dude. It's a multi-gazillion dollar business. But if you can't build your team and shape your team and build your roster, because again, in the pros, Nathan, you can't. No pro team rebuilds its entire roster every single year because people sign contracts and you stay. The world is not built on one-year contracts. If we get to the point where college sports feels like it's built on one year, no, one year, one year, one year, one year, I do think that potentially could be something. Whether it drives the millionaire coaches out, guess what? Some other guy will be happy to come make a million bucks to do your job and deal with the transfer portal. But I do get that. Like, you know, like I do, it seems like a pain in the butt. Well, if you look back at uh, brief history lesson here, if you look back at the history of like labor relations in pro sports, I mean, baseball free agency was like one of the real breakthroughs in that. And at the time that that was happening, the owners were terrified of what you're talking about, which is that every year, every player was going to be a free agent and you'd have to go re-sign everybody to another one-year contract. And then the same thing would happen every year. So the union, Marvin Miller, one of the most brilliant men in the history of American sports, um, leveraged that and said, oh, well, we won't do that. We're not going to do that. It'll be every, you know, you can't do it until after six years. And then and all the all that did was like maximize the earnings in for those players. So that's not really that's a different tangent. But yes, that, that idea of free agency every year and having to put together a, a, a new team every year has been something that has long terrified, which is why free agency is not structured that way in the pros, as you're saying, like there are rules about it. But again, I get back to this, like we, we people keep talking about this, you know, Gary Parrish wrote this, a guy who's covered college basketball for a long time. He wrote this about Jay Wright. 
Sources indicated that he, like many of his colleagues, simply reached a point where the job wasn't nearly as fun as it used to be because of all the things coaches now have to deal with that didn't used to exist. Name, image, and likeness rights were long overdue. The one-time transfer waiver is fair. Alternative options for high school prospects are great. Social media is fun. But even the coaches who agree with each of those previous four sentences, and trust me, not all of them do, acknowledge that the combination of these things has made their jobs complex and in many ways unappealing. But my point is it's we're t- it's being talked about like something that's being forced upon college coaches, whereas if college coaches had collectively come forward and said, let's make if they had gotten behind the uh, idea of treating players like employees, and then you could structure things like contracts, you could structure things, you could put more parameters around the transfer rather than just turning it over to them and letting it be a free-for-all. But in many ways, they did the opposite. And the vast majority of them felt the opposite way. They've been bemoaning the idea of treating players as employees and the the as, as being like a, a – something that would be catastrophic to college sports. So which is it? It, 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 It's, it's one or the other. You got to have one or the other now. So which one is more catastrophic to college sports? Um, I I don't know which way to turn for these guys. And I, I I wanted to bring up something else. We haven't had any weasel talk on Buckeye talk in a while. Hmm. I think it's time for some weasel talk. Hmm. Dabo Swinney recently, Clemson football coach Dabo Swinney recently gave, did a Q and a with ESPN. And he was asked this question. Do you understand when people say, well, coaches like Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban are making in the $10 million range. Why shouldn't the athletes be able to profit even before they get on campus? Talking about NIL stuff. And here's Swinney's response. Well, Nick Saban is 70 years old. I'm 52 years old. None of us set markets on what we do. We live in a capitalist society. And he goes on to some crap about how the guy who is the head of Delta makes more than the baggage carriers. This, I felt like, and I don't think the, the ESPN interviewer followed this up. To me, this is the this is uh, this is the Tom Cruise Jack Nicholson moment of college sports to me a little bit, where it's like, okay, you're saying that the reason you're paid this much is because we live in a capitalist society and it's a free market that sets your salary. So why don't the players get to have a free market that sets how much they're compensated? And like, it's it, coaches want it both ways. What coaches really want is to go back to um, the we're about to do a, a, a retalkables on a game from the 1930s. I think there's coaches who are still holding on with white knuckles to going back to that. And it's just never going to happen. And they're not, if, if I, I the way I see it, if, if the coaches weren't, aren't going to be more progressive in, in pushing for reforms that would make it more like professional sports, then they probably are going to get run out of this because that's what it already has been. They just weren't treating the labor that way. Because it's not, I mean, it's really not those other things. Because there's social media in the NFL. I mean, it's Kevin Stefanski being driven crazy. Is JB Bickerstaff being driven crazy by the social media accounts of his players? No, it doesn't matter. Pro players have endorsements. Do the coaches care? No, they don't care. It's just the roster stuff. It's just the player movement. That's all it is. That's what's driving them crazy. Because they feel like they can't plan anything. And I do think in sports, it's better if you can plan a little bit. That doesn't mean players should have no rights, but maybe this pushes up it to what you're saying. Again, it was the coach's way for a long time. It's never going back to that. But if this gets us more quickly, like how are we going to get more quickly to a point where players are directly played by programs? If coaches say, I can't do this. 
this is ridiculous because you pay them and then you limit them. But it has to be a trade-off. So there was never trade-offs in anywhere. In college sports, it was just the colleges and the coaches tell the players what to do and that's it. Now the players have some rights. But frankly, with the player movement, and again, we have not seen the craziest of it. Get back to me when the Heisman Trophy winner transfers just because he gets a better NIL deal somewhere else. Get back to me when that comes because it's getting. But if you say, okay, well, when you get to a school, you get paid this much. That ties you to the school for this long. If you stay at this school for a third year, your compensation goes up. If you leave, you can go to a new school. You can get an NIL deal, but then your compensation goes down. It's all the kind of stuff the NBA does with bird rights, right? That you want to do things. You can do things in your salary structure to encourage players to stay because there aren't, you, you usually do. That's kind of better for everybody. Stay. But if the player's giving up that freedom, and it's not that they're giving up the freedom, they have a choice within the freedom. I can get more money by staying, or I can get a little less money by leaving and going wherever I want to go. They may have to get there because then Jay Wright can have the roster certainty he's looking for, and the players will have money. But I do, I don't think this is the answer. And the one thing is, and again, we go back to everybody says, well, coaches can do this. How about players? Okay. CEO to baggage handler, I would get Dabo Sweeney some analogy consulting because that's not doing it hey you you know what everybody hates ceos right and your players are baggage handlers like they're pilots man they they're landing your plane get back to me when you don't so like that's insulting and by the way get 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 rid of all the baggage handlers and ask me how your airlines do it also that's also insulting you know what the baggage handlers get like a union and collective bargaining rights and and (laughs) things all the things that he would adamantly probably say players should not have so i do think like that's poorly done by him but you can pay for some roster certainty and you can work it out but guess how you're going to work it out by collectively bargaining it guess what you're going to have to have in order to collectively bargain a freaking union and i'll by the way on the other side you're going to have to have a functional governing body of Mm -hmm. college sports so you have neither right now yep so it probably has gone a little too far that way because i i do understand like our school recruited this player. He came, he was really good. And now he's gone. And that's it. And you don't even get like draft pick compensation and there's no limit on it. There's no salary cap. The team's just like, just leave. I get why that would be frustrating. I'm not going to sob for Jay Wright and coaches like him, but I get why that would be frustrating. And I don't think it's the end best answer, but you've got to work it out and you can't work it out until you sit down at a table together with equal representation on both sides. And as much as that probably is getting the point, well, that makes sense for college sports. Functionally, we're so far from that. The NCAA is so non-functional, much less the lack of a union for the players. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I understand why I don't, I'm not crying for Jay Wright but I sort of see where he's coming from. But I also don't think we're going to see 50 other college basketball coaches leave their multi-million dollar jobs this offseason just because roster management is more of a headache. No, I think some of them are figuring it out. Although I, if I were Jay Wright and I had all this money, I would maybe just want to go hang out and spend like 20, 25 years with my grandkids or whatever and not be out. Even if even without NIL and transfers, just doing all the stuff you have to do 365 to be a college basketball coach. Um, here's my other point in in the piece that Parrish wrote, he sort of posited that it's not a coincidence that 
Jay Wright and Coach K and uh, Roy Williams are all stepping away within like one year of each other, or two years of each other, or whatever. And and that the it's the the forces of the game are or the 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 pressures of the game and the demands of the game are forcing out these coaches. And number one, I think there were some health things that may have factored into the, the other two besides Jay Wright. But they're old. They're very old. But also, do you know what North Carolina did this year without Roy Williams? Like they still almost won a national championship. Like I think sometimes we I, I don't really care if some coaches are fed up and get pushed out. They'll find another coach. I think we we care too much about even head coaches sometimes and and the and needing to like coddle them and make sure the game is like everything is done according to what's their what's most comfortable for them. Like they're paid lavishly. Like I don't have a lot of sympathy beyond that when it comes to the balancing it out with again, if they had been more proactive, all of this this all of these reforms were started when people finally came around to how ridiculous it was that a coach could be guaranteed millions of dollars for failing, for getting paid to get out of his contract. Whereas players were sometimes scraping by and, you know, the chase youngs of the world don't have $200 to buy a plane ticket or whatever. And not excusing chase young committing a violation, but just saying that like that, that disparity is how we got to here. So if coaches have been more proactive about a better way to solve that, than to just do what the NCAA has done, which is just like say, well, whatever, Wild West, then then Jay Wright might still be coaching. But because he and a lot of other coaches didn't speak up enough about it, here we are. Roy Williams and Coach K are old, and Roy, and Jay Wright is not the first coach to retire young. So, you know, when John Madden left the NFL in his 30s, I don't know if people were like, oh, the NFL's too stressful. He's going to be an announcer. It's like, whatever. Sometimes you retire young. So also, let's see. If it's a trend, because Jim Beheim's like 90 and he's still coaching. Yeah. So, so let, let's see coach K and Roy Williams is nothing. Jay Wright is interesting. So let's see, let's, let's wait and see if, if this becomes any kind of thing. But let's also wait and see if two years from now, there's an NBA team that has an opening that calls Jay Wright. And he says, absolutely no. Or does he say, oh. Because that's, I think that's the yeah, other thing yeah, you yeah, said yeah. that like, you know, our, our college coaches in the past, there were college coaches like the ones we just mentioned, like all time great college coaches who I'm s- certain rebuffed NBA opportunities because um, the maybe the the um, balance of frustrations between college and NBA wasn't as great as it is now. And now if it is becoming increasingly frustrating because in college you get all of the hassle of those things that you have to deal with, with like none of the benefit the other thing that i've i've heard people have been like well you know all these college coaches are going to get fed up with having to deal with all these things themselves and like won't we also just adapt to a point where like the college structure will start to take on a more nfl or nba structure i mean kind of like what's already i mean how state essentially has it football essentially has a, a gm and mark pantoni in some ways like i think that's something that's going to be a little bit more formalized as we go forward where roster um oversight and working hand in hand with NIL, like that stuff's going to get more formalized as we go forward with this. So uh, there's a lot of like maybe overreaction happening right now, as far as like the motives that people have for even like Jay Wright stepping down. I think some of this, we're still in the very, very, very early stages. We're still within a year of NIL even being 
a part of college football or a part of college sports. Like all that stuff happened last July. So I think there's going to be some adaptation that happens as we get two full years into this, three, five. This is a very interesting point you're making because in the NFL, typically player acquisition and player coaching is two separate jobs. And in college, it's been one job. And as you said, we've talked a lot with recruiting lately about the, the GMification of recruiting gurus. And Mark Pantone is the lead example of that. But if we get to the point where player acquisition in college is significantly more complicated, maybe it does become two jobs. So the coach is still like, hey, I want a 6'6 wing who can guard. But maybe you're, it's like, I'll coach whoever my GM gets me. And then it's like, well, your stressful offseason, it's not so stressful. You'll just, whoever shows up at practice, that's who you're coaching. Just like in the NBA. Doc Rivers didn't trade for James Harden. Doc Rivers wasn't sitting there going, oh man, all these different offers for Ben Simmons. Which one should we take? He was just like, all right, tell me who to coach when they show up. And Daryl Morey made the trade. So if Jay Wright's stressed out, maybe just needs to Daryl Morey to figure out his player stuff. And that's where we get to. So maybe we don't have to change the rules. Maybe we just college sports needs to hire more people. Maybe you got to pay the coaches a little less because you got to start paying GMs. Not, and not that you would be completely separated from recruiting, but, but what if it just became that, that the head coach is not really the person in charge of that? Ryan Day says, hey, man, I really like this style of quarterback. And then the GM's like, all right. Here's five guys we're going to go after. We'll let you know. We'll get one of them for you. Ryan Day's like, cool. When the guy wants to come visit, let me know. I'm going to be in here drawing up plays. Maybe that's what we get to because it is, right? I mean, and then the rare guys, Bill Belichick's both, but it's rare. And guess what? Chip Kelly went to the NFL and tried to be both, and he torpedoes coaching because he was a crappy GM. Not a lot of guys are good at both. So it's usually separated. But in college, we just expect that you're both. Why? Because that's the way it's been. And the thing about college, why guys like college in the past is because of the power. What's the difference between being a college coach and an NFL or NBA coach? I have total power here. Now I've got to deal with donors and boosters and I got a university president and I have to do recruiting, but I'm the most powerful person on campus. In the NBA, I'm not more powerful than my owner. And if I stink for a year, I'm going to get fired. Here, I become a brand unto myself. I'm good to go. I can survive a bad year. So if you take the power away, and the power's not gone from college head coaches, but it's dissipating compared to what it was, then it makes college a little, that was the number one thing about college. And it's a little less, you know, it's a little less appealing than like, well, heck with this. I'll just go to the pros then. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the pros, you Rarely is the coach the most important, seen as the most important figure, I feel like, in an organization. Once in a while, you'll get guys who stick around for so long that and have such sustained success that'll happen. But like in college, no matter how great of a player, I think this especially applies to basketball, like you get incredibly great players in. They're there for like one, two years, sometimes max, and then they move on. And so that coach is still standing there. And whereas in the pros, you know, the, the whole point is like get that player and then keep them as long as you possibly can. And that's that's where the power balance goes. So I think you're right. I think that's something that coaches are adapting to on the fly. But again, I think if I, I go back to I go back a decade, like if coaches had just been 
uh, a little bit more forward thinking and a little less uh, reactionary and and reacting with fear as to how this was going to change. If they had maybe just saw a little more clearly what was going to happen. I think maybe what happened was the maybe the coaches misplaced their trust in the NCAA to provide the structure for how this would develop. Because once there was no structure from the NBA for how this or the NCAA for how this was going to develop, then that's what led us really to where we are now. It's the, the NCAA either having no power in the first place or abdicating whatever oversight they had and just leaving us with this free for all. They weren't going to address the issue until the issue became a problem. And now some are viewing it as a problem. And the proof is Jay Wright just retired. So I don't know if that's exactly right. Sometimes you think, hey, here's a perfect example of thing that's happening. And it's like, no, it's not. It's just a thing that happened coincidentally while this other thing was happening. But it turns out it's not a trend. It's not the beginning of something. A guy just retired. So I get why people are writing that and saying that. I'm sure, I mean, Jay Wright's saying it. But he, so I mean, he might've retired in, two more years if they didn't have the transfer portal and NIL, right? I mean, it seems like he didn't want to coach until he was 75. So, right. you know, um, if, if they made me, uh, you know, clean everybody's computer every week as part of my job and a listen, in addition to shouting into a microphone, I might retire in three years because I don't want to have to clean everybody's computer and also shout into a microphone but I'm not going to be here for 50 or more for 30 more years. Anyway, it might hasten something I was already going to do. I don't think, I don't think NIL and the portal drove Jay Wright from college basketball. It probably hastened an inkling that he had because it was a little more pain in the butt and a little less fun than it used to be. But doesn't, I don't think it means Chris Holtman's going to retire next week. Well, the other side of this too, before we break as the door has been open to players earning for their name, image, and likeness, which means that that money comes to them without any involvement from the schools. What have we also seen, especially in college football? Salaries are still going up. So these coaches who do stick around uh, are probably going to get paid more than they ever have before anyway. So the, there will be, there'll be a reward for the extra hassle, it certainly looks like. Yeah, let's cut, come back in a week when Villanova gives Jay Wright $20 million a year. And he's like, you know what? Nah, I don't need to retire. I'm back, baby. Just like think, Tom Brady. I think they've already moved on, but I I will be interested to see if he actually retires or if he if if we see him on a sideline again sooner than later. But good luck to him. But by the way, to bring this back to Ohio State, the way I found out Jay Wright retired was in a tweet from Chris Holtman. Because I had not heard the news, but I saw him tweet something about, oh, good luck to Jay Wright and his family. I'm like, what? Yeah. News they they played they they played against each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And Chris Holman has talked about how much he uh, yeah. you, you know, admired the way Jay Wright ran his program for, for obvious reasons. I think Jay Wright was about – you talked a lot about Jay Wright this past year when we were doing March Madden and stuff. I think he's about as good as it gets. We When Shahan and I did our draft of the best football, men's basketball, and women's basketball coaches in the country, we did a combo draft. I think Jay Wright went like fourth. So – like we thought he was about as good as it gets. And it's interesting. Steven and I have had the conversation of is Villanova, the ideal version of what Chris Holtman would like Ohio state to be right. That maybe, maybe it's not top 10 picks every year, but it's really good basketball players, NBA guys for sure. But you try to develop something, whatever. And then, of course, easier said than done. And then 
it's like, oh, Villanova can't sustain Villanova-ness anymore to the extent that Jay Wright retired. So I guess that's not the path for Chris Holtman, who is out living in the portal this offseason because he's trying to find answer, answers for his roster. And he just got a guy from Wright State that's probably going to be their starting two guards. So, I mean, like, it's just Chris Holtman's not kicking back and just talking about how they're going to develop the young guys. He's trying to, like, add three guys to his rotation this offseason. Well, it's, but he's also not voluntarily living in the portal. He's living in the portal somewhat because the players he recruited are also living in the portal. So it's, it's both ways. He's, he's, he's got to go there. Well, but that's the whole, I mean, but you can either be in the, like everything, you can be in the, be in the portal because of strength or be in the portal because of weakness. Cause I mean, cause one of the reasons he's in the portal is because Malachi Branham developed so quickly, he's going to leave. So on one hand, like that's why do they have to get Tanner sure. Holden? Because they, because the Malachi Branham thing went so well he's probably gone. And then there are other times in the portal. Cause it's like, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. So we better go get that. So Fair. that's the thing with the portal. Now I think coaches were always, I think that's that I think is actually it too. The coaches were accustomed to having to do stuff to make up for mistakes or weaknesses. Right. But when it feels like I did, I, Mr. Coach did something right. And my reward is my players left. Right. I don't think people are that upset when backups leave, but I think when great players leave and when guys that you think are on the cusp of being a very good player and they, in your opinion, are impatient and it's like, Hey man, you're going to start for us in year three, but they want to start in year two. So they go somewhere else. That I think is what drives coaches crazy. That it's like, we, we recruited the right kid. We developed in the right way, and we're just a little too good for him to play right now. But he is absolutely part of our future, and he doesn't want to wait. He wants to go now, and so we lost him. That, I think, is what drives guys like Jay Wright out. Well, but would you say that player is wrong for saying, I want to get on the court, man? No, but that's not really what's happening at either Ohio State or Villanova. A guy who develops in the first-round NBA pick in his second year, that's a good problem to have. Are well, I'm not saying a guy... State- but they're not losing starters to the transfer portal, are they? But I think maybe they're losing uh, guys. I don't know the specifics of Villanova, but like, are they losing um, like a Jamison Williams kind of thing, right? That he was going to be a really good player, but he went to wait here behind the other guys. So he left kind of thing. I don't know what's happening at Villanova, but I, when you read the stories, it's like, Hey, we developed these guys and then they want to play and then they leave and that kind of thing. But no one's mad about players that you don't think are good enough. So it's not that. So what is it? Like, what is the portal thing that bothers you? It's guys that you want on your roster leaving. So who is that? I think often it's guys on the way up who don't want to wait. Also, coaches, I guess, could like collude and get together and say, we're not taking any incoming transfers. But nobody's doing that either. I'm trying to think even like the DJ Carton recruitment for Chris Holtman. That was like a five-star point guard. Holtman's supposed to be a point guard whisperer. Obviously, there were some mental health things involved. DJ Carton, he has the right to go do whatever he wants to do. But that ended pretty quick. Instead of it being like, hey, a little bit of a bumpy freshman year. Let's get through this offseason. It's cool. We'll work through it together and come back and, and get on it. As a sophomore, he was just gone. So, like, I think that kind of thing. I see what you're saying. Back after the break for watch it, watch him, watch you eating here on Buckeye Talk. What do you want to do first, Doug? What you watch and what you eating? Well, both of mine are bad, so you can decide. 
<laughs> Both of them are bad? In what way? Yeah. They're weird and boring. Oh, okay. I, oh, let me go first then, because mine are connected. Um, we went and saw this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. This is probably going to be, we, we need, we want, my wife and I want to get out to a movie because we don't know when the next time will be that we can actually go to a movie theater once this guy comes. And uh, this is the one we picked. It's a, it's a weird movie. It's by uh, this, um, it's by a, a directing duo called The Daniels. Are you familiar with The Daniels? I am not. They did a film a couple years ago with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe called um, Swiss Army Man about a guy who finds like a, I, I can't even really describe this. Like he finds a dead body. I think Paul Dano, I can't remember which one is dead. I think Paul Dano is dead. Daniel Radcliffe finds dead Paul Dano and then like uses his body to like get around. I, it, I can't even possibly begin to describe it. It's been a few it's years. Weekend since at I've seen Bernie's. It. It's weekend at Bernie's with Army guy. It's not nearly as like uh, mainstream zany as Weekend at Bernie's. Though it's it's a weird movie, but I like weird stuff. I like when I go to see a movie and like, oh, I've never seen that before, and you've you've made me look at things from a new perspective. And this film uh, was was really interesting. It starts off as kind of like you think it's going to be sort of like a coming of age um, immigrant tale about this Chinese family um, living in America. And then it's sort of like it's sort of like that thing, um, that prank where like somebody's about to walk and get up in your car and you kind of hit the gas and you move up a little bit and you kind of laugh at them. It does that a couple times to you, but then finally it hits the gas and then it's a completely different movie. Some really just um, some like some really like body fun stuff, a lot of like like sight gags, but. It's, it's all about like the multiverse. It's a very complicated movie. Uh, I, I, multiverse. I, I'm only, but, but that's almost, if you get too wrapped up in that part of the plot, I think you're going to miss the point of the film. And I don't know if I like how the movie resolved, but if you're looking for a movie, that's like an experience and that is really funny. I, I recommend it. It's, it's almost like if you're, if, cause I don't like comic book movies. Here's a good example. Uh, the last Spider-Man movie also was about this multiverse stuff. I thought it was, garbage i thought it was really the worst i thought it was like the worst comic book movie i've seen in a long time i felt it, I, I i thought it was a very cynical way to make one of these movies like one of my criticisms has been like i don't need a third spider-man reboot in the last decade like how about something new and instead for like the final installment of this they spoiler alert they just give you like all three of those spider-mans at once and they're like screw you yeah you do need three spider-mans every 10 years and i'm like no i don't and it, it was it just wasn't a good movie, I didn't think. But this, I thought, was interesting and fresh. And again, I, I, I gave me just a it was an unexpected and refreshing experience. You are not Joe Q public. You're like, ah, three Spider-Man. Listen, like, I, I need all these Spider-Man. I, I liked all the Spider-Men together. It was they were pointing at each other. But hold on. I was like raised on Star Wars. I was I, I came up through like very conventional. I like all those like 90s and early 2000s comedies like that's my bread and butter. Like I like all those movies, too. But when it comes to the comic book stuff, I find it to be very uh, uh, redundant and predictable and not that interesting to me. But I that's what I liked story. about the three Spider-Mans. Is it Spider-Men or Spider-Mans? Spider's man. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I liked it. Cause that did not seem, re- I mean, I guess it literally is redundant, but it's, it was different. It was like, but it oh, felt like, it's like all three of the, it was all three famous guys. They're all famous. To I me, I'm not ruining it. 
if for people who like really love Spider-Man and okay, you want to see all three of them together. To me, it felt like a giant middle finger to everybody who was like, can't we get a different kind of movie? But also now there's like, now they've started coming out with like all these comic book movies from like comics that I've never heard of. Like what was this one? The Oscar Isaac was just in. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. The moon, yeah. moon, something like I, and I was just like, what? Now you guys are really reaching to come up with this new content. So I'm out on those two. Yeah. I'm not a big, I am definitely not a big uh, comic book movie guy either, but I liked the three Spider-Man guys together. Um, all right. I'll do my, what you're watching. Cause I'm watching two things and it's related to one person. So I really like Steve Carell. He was on the office. Mm-hmm. He's Michael Scott. He's the 40 year old virgin. Um, what did you say? That truck had two sides and they both hurt equally. Comes down on his bike. So I'm, I like Steve Carell things. So I'm watching two things right now that Steve Carell is in. They're not super new, but I'm just, I'm getting to them. One is Space Force on Netflix, which is a comedy where he's the, the general of the Space Force. And the other is the morning show on Apple TV, which is a morning show thing with him and Jennifer Aniston. And he's like the Matt Lauer character who's like a sexual predator, but he was like the host of this popular uh, daytime or this morning show. And uh, in the Space Force, when he uh, uses like a a gravelly voice, so people don't think he's Michael Scott. It's like, oh, wait, you have a gravelly voice. So you're not Michael Scott. And then the other one, he's like, he's like a serial sexual. He's like Matt Lauer. Lauer, Yeah. Yeah. And so. Space Force is Space Force is Steve Carell and John Malkovich in a sitcom. John Malkovich, and it's terrible. It hurts my heart. Really? I, writing, I like it. I think the writing is so flat. I am so disappointed by it. I love the idea, and I like the weird little uh, secretary guy. I like the idea of the show. I think the execution, it doesn't make me laugh that much, but I keep watching it, hoping that the next episode will make me laugh. And because I really like Steve Carell and I really like John Malkovich and it just, it's a, it's a reminder of like, man, does writing matter? Holy guacamole. And then the morning show, my wife and I really like it, but he's mean. He's terrible. He's like a terrible, horrible person. And so then I just watch office reruns instead. So I don't want to typecast him because I'm not doing it. It's just like, it's two shows. Steve Carell's busy. He's still out there getting it done. And neither of them hit the sweet spot of Steve Carell. Cause I ooh, just give me some sweet old Steve Carell. Well, That's nice and juicy for little Dougie. And I can't get it. So I've got to go back to, you know, Hey, Michael Scott, what you going to do? What you going to do to make our dreams come true? Like that, that never fails me. Uh, yeah, I had heard bad reviews of Space Force before I ever watched it. So I think my I went in with really low expectations. And I think because of that, I've thought it was all right. But because we just started watching the second season of it. But I would agree that it is not a consistent laugh out loud show. And there are people, Lisa Kudrow's on it. I don't know the actor's name, but it's the guy who was on Silicon Valley, who was hilarious on that show. He's on it. 
and it's just uh, it's, it's got John Ralphio from Parks and Rec yeah, is on it. Uh, Noah like Emmerich, all... people who know from the yes. Americans, is on it. It's a great cast. It's an all-star cast. Patton Oswalt, Tim, Tim Meadows. It's an all-star yeah. cast, and it's just like, eh, it. I might have giggled once in twenty-nine <laughs> minutes. Oh well. I would say that I laugh. I think I laugh really well about like once per episode, but that's not probably enough. It needs to be a, a higher ratio than that. But yeah. I was also going to say. As much as I love Steve Carell in The Office, some of my favorite Steve Carell, I thought he was incredible in Foxcatcher. I thought he was great in The Big Short, like both more like dramatic roles. I, I thought he was, and they're very, those two things are also very different from each other. Like one is a more like subdued, creepy performance. One of them is a little bit more like a frantic, over the top performance. But I, I thought they were both fantastic. I think he's a really talented guy beyond just kind of the network sitcom stuff that he's known for also uh the guy in anchorman very nuanced yes. performance <laughs> yes my one of my favorite steve carell things was they used to do a thing on well he was on the dana carvey show that like short-lived yeah. disaster dana carvey show there's some really funny stuff from that if you go back and watch it but there was also a thing they used to do on the D daily show called uh even steven which was him and stephen colbert and they would just like each take a different side of a a topic like a like a point counterpoint kind of thing and it would always start by being like um do we need to raise taxes on the wealthiest people in this country? And one of them would go, no. And the other would go, yes. And the other one would go, no. And then he would start like his part of the debate. But every episode started like that. Um, what I'm eating was after we got done at the movie the other night, it was a longer movie than we expected. We hadn't eaten dinner because we wanted to eat popcorn for the last time in a theater before this kid came. So on the way home, we're like, well, let's just stop and get something real quick. And we stopped at the Wendy's here um, in our neighborhood. And when I lived in Indianapolis, going to a Wendy's drive through was like the Tour de France. It was like an endurance sport. It was the 12 trials of Hercules. Like you could, it took forever to get through any Wendy's drive through anywhere in like the greater Indianapolis area. To because it was, it was so crowded or because it was inefficient. I think incompetence. It was okay. crowded. Yes. But like you've been to a Chick-fil-A that's crowded and they whip those people through there. Same thing. Sometimes at McDonald's, I feel like McDonald's cranks it for whatever reason. It was tough at Wendy's last night. They got us through our Wendy's really fast. So I want to give a shout out to the Wendy's on Livingston Avenue here in, uh, in Columbus, but also it dawned on me. Uh, we got um, a burger and we got a frosty and I was starting to think that like, like penny for penny, the frosty might be the most satisfying consistently delivering fast food item yeah no i think that's probably right because you can get a small one for like 99 cents yeah they and always have you, like deals you don't usually need more than a small one because at some point you get a brain freeze but it's also so rare like it's special i always say right they say there's three forms of matter right liquid gas and solid but there's really four because there's frosty. Because what mm -hmm. is a frosty? Yeah. What is it? I don't. I don't even know. I don't know how they do it. And especially when you compare it to McDonald's, whose ice cream machine is always broken, right. it stands out even more. The frost. I've never been anywhere where the frosty machine is broken. But I don't know how they do it. What What is the temperature of a frosty to have it that be that consistent? That can that consistency that. Because you can't, you know, I mean, we all know what a Frosty is. 
I'm not describing, I'm not going to mansplain a frosty to you people out there. You're a frosty kind of people, but it's a, it's a miracle. Modern plumbing, the internet and frosty machines, the three greatest inventions in America in the last 200 years. I think you might be right. Almost to the point where it was like, I don't know, nine 30, 10 o'clock and we're going through the drive-thru and I'm, I'm, ordering this frosty with trepidation because I've been burned so many times at McDonald's where they, they like either the machine's broken or they turn it off at seven o'clock at night or whatever. And you can't get an ice cream cone uh, after a certain period. It seems like, because they must hire like three people just to come in and clean that thing out every night. It's so complicated, but the frosties are reliable. They always have the frosties cranking. I would like a frosty machine in my house. I wonder if I could get that for my birthday, my 50th birthday. That's what I'll ask my wife to get. Your 50th birthday ahead of your. It's not from Columbus. See, not seeing your 51st birthday. It's from Columbus. Maybe I can, we've got to have a Wendy's. There's somebody there. I the Wendy's headquarters. My daughter one time won a writing contest in the. <laughs> it was in eighth grade, so it was like four years ago, and it was for Central Ohio. There was kids from all these different schools, and I guess Wendy's did it, but the ceremony was at Wendy's headquarters. And there was a dinner and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to get Wendy's. And then it was a taco bar. But it wasn't the old Wendy's taco bar. Uh, it was like a regular, it was like your mom made tacos. Oh, the Wendy's taco bar. Oh my God. Don't you assume awesome. like, if, if you were, if you're that wealthy, I just sort of assume that if you're like an athlete who's making 40 million a year, you're an actor who gets paid 20, $30 million a movie. Those people are, how do they not have frosty machines in their house? They probably get them for oh. free, but, 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 or is it a thing where like, look, we'll sell you one, but just don't tell anybody like it's on the DL. I'm going like to do that. I'm going to tweet it like Tom Hanks and Kevin Hart and Gwyneth Paltrow and LeBron and be like, do you have a frosty machine in your house? Because that's the height of luxury. Is it not? Yeah, LeBron might not because he actually cares about what's going into his body because he's an athlete. But like, if I was an actor, I mean, like Zach Galifianakis should have a frosty machine. Don't you think Beyonce has a frosty machine in her house? Maybe. You got, that's Beyonce money and Jay-Z money. Yeah. They should have They should have just like a Wendy's franchise in their house. Because she just dances it all off. She could eat, a, eat three frosties a day. Um, yeah, okay. Well, that's better than mine. I've been eating a lot of lettuce out of a bag. And <laughs> I love lettuce. And I would like to do a deep dive at some point the best Olive Garden has the best lettuce in the world. I don't understand how they do it. They bring the, the salad to your table and the lettuce is fresh and crisp. And uh, I don't use any salad dressing. So I taste every bite of lettuce that goes in my mouth. You know, bacon bits and croutons are a must. But I just love a good bag of lettuce. And when we were there, we have lots of bags of lettuce, but we do not have heads of lettuce because what am I going to do? shred my own lettuce what am i a farmer yes so one time we always talk about this when my daughter was like five we had a head of lettuce in the house and she, and she'd been eating bagged lettuce her whole life and there was a head of lettuce in the house and she pointed and said what's that and she did <laughs> not know i think she just thought lettuce grew in a plastic bag with little slices of radish and that's how god made it and we had to explain, no, that's actually what the lettuce looks like before someone shreds it and puts it in the bag that we then consume. So I feel like it makes me a bad person for eating lettuce out of a bag instead of 
just getting ahead of lettuce and pulling it apart myself, but it's wonderful. I'm going to go have when I, we have lunch, when I have lunch right now, I'm going to have a little salad, get, get my bag of lettuce, bacon bits, croutons, have a little side salad, a little pasta. Mwah! I love lettuce. And I want to know how, all, I don't know how Olive Garden makes it better. It's probably not a bag. First of all, it's probably actually heads of lettuce that someone in the kitchen is pulling apart, but well done. And I know you people out there, I know. And the spicy, like a nice spicy onion. Woo. Onion with some kick. I know you people, you Olive Garden people, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, Baird. The salad at the Olive Garden is top notch. I don't, I, I have eaten the salad at Olive Garden. We don't frequent Olive Garden. I do, I do like the like all you can eat aspect of Olive Garden. Like once a year, go in there and just like pick out. We're probably overdue for that. Maybe I can talk the wife into oh, an Olive Garden excursion. Tweet, tweet have- a photo of the salad. Okay, I'll text a photo of the salad yeah, to our tech yeah. subscribers. And they'll be like, stop. <laughs> That's it. That's you it. guys have gone too far. Last straw. Last straw. Do you at least get a bag of romaine or are you just getting a bag of iceberg lettuce? Usually it's mixed. Not never just iceberg by itself. Okay. Usually it's like the American mix. So it's like some romaine, some iceberg, little some shredded carrot little radish sometimes i just get the straight romaine i don't want straight iceberg though no that's because yeah. i like i like the greener i don't want super white lettuce i want the greener the better the greener the better buckeye talk that'll wrap up this episode of monday i Mad- told you mine were bad i told you mine bags of lettuce what'd you get Did you listen to a podcast today yeah what are they talking about frosties and lettuce <laughs> sorry well, one of the guys basically said that every movie that comes out in America is crap. And then the other guy <laughs> talked about lettuce. <laughs> days a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're going to do You'll do madness when you have a baby. You'll just come on once a week and do madness just so we can do this. <laughs> Maybe. That would be pretty fun. I'm probably going to be, like I said, I'm going to have my own version of madness. I may just be like calling you and leaving long voice messages about like, uh, I got something I got to say about this oh, yeah that's good that'd be Bottle good cleaners i'll just play them i'll just play them for the good people on the show just, yeah just baby rant we are going to be talking more nfl draft i imagine this week because the nfl draft is this week starts thursday night thursday friday saturday ohio state players probably going on all three days as is customary we know they're going in the first round so thursday night i guess be ready for some probably some quick reaction to chris Olave and garrett wilson and I may or may not be a part of that. So it'll either be all three of us or it'll just be Doug and Steven hanging out, bringing you the goods. But until next time, I'm Nathan Baird. He's Doug Lee Maurice. That was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.